Okay? And if you're visiting with us, we are going through the Psalms for the summer. And then after Labor Day, we'll pick up on the Gospel of Matthew. So when you get to Psalm 51, we come to what's one of the more uh, famous Psalms. Psalm 23 is famous, 24 is famous, 1, 2, 8, 100. And then I would say that in that line is Psalm 51. And it's called a, uh, a penitentiary psalm, not because the guy's in the penitentiary who writes it, but it is written by King David, who is a penitent. He is sorrowful for his sins. And when you read the superscription over that psalm, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on, our, on your table, and feel free to pick one of those up. You'll notice that it is to the chief musician. This is not a psalm that's to be used only for private devotions, like most Christians read the psalms. It is for public consumption. It is a psalm that is to be sung during worship. But the theme is very interesting, because it says it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this psalm, the events, or the, the content of this psalm, is based on the events that take place in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And you know that story. It's a famous story when King David evidently is looking out of maybe a tower window in his palace, and he looks down, and he sees a woman named Bathsheba sunbathing on the roof of her house. And he lusts for her, and being the king, he can snap his finger and people jump, and he invites this woman to his palace, we might say, and he has an affair with her. She's married. Her husband is a soldier. And King David wants to have an ongoing affair with this woman, so he sends her, soldier, her husband, soldier husband to the front lines of battle against the Ammonites where the man is killed. So in a sense, David is responsible for the act of adultery and he's responsible for the death of her husband. When word gets back that her husband dies, Bathsheba goes into a year of mourning. At the end of that year of mourning, King David takes this woman as his wife. This means this relationship has been going on for at least two years. Because he has the affair with the woman when he suspects that her husband might think something is fishy. He sends him off in the battle. You didn't get you didn't get on an airplane and fly to battle. You marched the battle. This guy's in a war. So this affair's been going on this whole time. The man's in the war in the battle until he dies, which could have been a year or two. And then she mourns for a year and then he makes her his wife. <coughs> so as a result of that, <clears throat> King David has sinned grievously, and onto the scene steps the prophet Nathan. And he says, King, we've got a problem. King David says, well, what's the problem? He said, there's these two men. There's one man who's very rich and has this tremendous flock. There's this one man who's very poor, and all he has is a little ewe lamb. In fact, he's raised this lamb, he lamb, he brought the lamb into the world. It was born the same time his daughter was born. This poor man. And he's raised this lamb with his daughter. It's become a family pet. 
He even feeds the lamb off of the food on his table. Well, the rich man who has this big flock has a visitor, a very important visitor coming in the town. He wants to have dinner for him, but he doesn't want to use his own animal. So what does he do? He goes out and steals the poor man's little ewe lamb. Kills it and uses that to feed the rich, to feed his rich guest. So what should we do about this? King David said, that man must die. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. You have everything in the world. You're a rich man. And guess what? You've gone and you've taken this poor soldier's wife. And David gets under conviction of sin. And then he pronounces a series of judgments on David. And one of the judgments is this. The sword shall come to your nation. The sword will never depart from your house. Because you killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. And what you have done is you have given the enemy the opportunity to blaspheme my name. So, that's the setup. And when you look at this, uh, you'll see that this is what we call a lament. This is a song of sorrow from a penitent heart. Uh, some of you who were my age and older remember the movie uh, Lily. And it goes, the song, the theme song is, The song of love is a sad song. Hi, Lily. Hi, Lily. Hi, love. Yeah. It's a sad song. And uh, David is now pouring out his guts in this sad song of lament about the love for this woman, a forbidden love, and what has been the result. So he cries out in this psalm uh, in contrition with a sorrowful heart. And uh, that's what you need to know. Okay, Now, when you look at this Psalm, there's a couple of things that you need to know about it. Number one, this is the first psalm, the first of the psalms that use the word spirit in connection with the Holy Spirit. The first 50 psalms, when they use the word spirit, it's talking about the human spirit or the human mind. This is the first one that makes a reference to the Holy Spirit as being uh, as God. The spirit here refers to God. Athanasius said this, uh, one of the uh, uh, great theologians. He said, this was his recommendation, when you wake up at night, you need to repeat the psalm. He thought that this psalm was so important that if you couldn't sleep tonight, guess what you should have done? You should have read through this psalm. Because if you don't, you're going to end up committing the kinds of things that David did. Now here's going to be our outline for the psalm. Okay, Verses 1 through 9... David asks for forgiveness of sin. So 1 through 9, forgiveness of sin. Okay. Stands in number 2 of the song. Verses 10 through 17. Salvation and its results. Salvation and its results. And then verses 18 and 19, David prays for the nation. Okay, He applies the psalm and his lessons to the entire nation. 
So let's look at this first part, the forgiveness of sins. And you'll notice in verse 1, we have an appeal or a supplication to God. Look what David says. Have mercy on me, O God. Literally, it is grace me, O God. Uh, provide something that I do not deserve. Okay, So he's asking God to give him something that he doesn't deserve, which is mercy or grace. He's sort of like the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son went away, <clears throat> lived in the pig pen, and said, what am I doing here in the pig pen? I need to go back to my father. But when he goes back, he says this, Father, I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. Just make me one of your servants. That's what David is saying. I don't deserve anything from you, Lord. Give me what I don't deserve. Have mercy upon me. And then he gets very specific. The basis for the mercy is according to your loving kindness according to the multitude of your tender mercies. That's the basis for the mercy. What The forgiveness that he wants. And here's his, here's his question. Here's his request. According to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Blot out my transgressions. Now, the word blot means erase. Erase my transgressions. Uh, wipe them off the books. You know, if you've ever uh, been arrested, if you can get your lawyer to expunge the books so that you don't have a record after the fact. That's what David's asking for. Have the indictment wiped off the books. Yes, I'm guilty, but have the charges and the indictment expunged from the books, from the records. Number two, <clears throat> verse two, second specific. Second thing he asked for, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's a parallelism. Line one and line two mean the same thing. So wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin mean the same thing. Okay. Now notice in verse one, he asked that the sins be blotted out. Take them off the books. But in verse two, he says, wash me. See that? He not only has to have the sins taken off the books, he needs to be cleansed himself. Because sin is not only on the books, sin is on David's soul. It has stained him as a human being. And he says, God, wash me thoroughly. He's, defi he's defiled. Notice the word thoroughly. He doesn't ask for half measures. See? It means wash me over and over and over again until the sin and the stain of sin is removed. Remember Pilate, how he washed his hands? There are stories that Pilate washed his hands every day of his life until the day he died, trying to wash the sin, the stain of sin off of his soul. And so that's what David asked God to do. Now look at the reason, verse 3. Because, here's why I'm asking you to do it, because I acknowledge my transgression. Notice the word transgressions is plural. In verse 1 and verse 3, it's plural. Uh, he's not only committed adultery, he's done a lot of other things. His sin was against the nation because he broke faith with that nation. His sin was against Bathsheba. His sin was murder as well of her husband Uriah. So the first thing that we need to do to be forgiven 
is we need to acknowledge our transgressions. We need to own up to our sin. And David makes no excuses. He doesn't offer any justification. And then look what else he says in verse 3. That's step number one, is you need to acknowledge your sin. You need to take responsibility for your sin, admit your guilt. At the end of verse 3, he says, My sin is always before me. It's never out of his mind. Now, David here is repentant. In fact, we'd have to say that he repented probably before he wrote the psalm. He's probably writing about the event. But notice he says, the sin is always before me. It's never out of my mind. Even after uh, the fact, he thinks about that sin. It haunts him day and night. When he wakes up, he thinks about that sin. Have you ever done? I can tell you right now, you can think of something you did when you were a kid. Maybe it was something you stole. Test you cheated on. You know what it is. An affair you had. And it's still there in your mind. And this sin haunts David. He has a guilty conscience. And he's saying to the Lord, it's, here's why I need you to wash it. Here's why I need you to blot it out and I need you to wash me clean. Because this thing is driving me crazy. It's haunting me. I need to get it out of my mind. I need to be cleansed. Look at verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. Uh, this is why God is a rightful judge. Because David considers that his sin is against God and God alone. Has he sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Has he sinned against Uriah? Yes. Has he sinned against the nation? Yes. But when you get right down to the root of sin, his sin is against God. And every sin we commit is against God. Because when we sin, when we choose to lie or whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. Before we do it, we know that God says don't do it. We know the rules. And guess what we say? I don't care what you want. I want that woman. I want that drug. I want that thing that belongs to somebody else. I, I, I. Sin is self-centered and it's always against God. It's the same as if you are putting your fist in God's face every time you sin knowingly. And it's an act of rebellion against God, and it's an act of treason against God. When Adam and Eve sin, they sin knowingly. And so do we. So David acknowledges that his sin is against God alone, and since his sin is against God, God has a right to judge his sin. Okay? Now look what else it says in verse 4. And I've done this evil in your sight. Look at that. I've done this evil in your sight. You see, when we sin, we sin usually in secret. We think we can get away with it, but no one's looking when we sin. And usually we can. No one knows when we've done something. It's only when you get caught that they know it. If you're a shoplifter, the only time they know you've done it is when you get caught. But God's watching down. He sees David with Bathsheba. It's not hidden to God. It was done before God. God is a witness to the sin. Therefore, David can't say, I haven't sinned because he sinned before God. You can't get away with giving some justification for your sin. God sees what you've done. 
And David realizes this. He is guilty as charged, and he's just laying it out like it is. He's deceived himself long enough. And now he's just laying out the truth right on the line. And then look what he says at the end of verse 4. He said, I've done this evil in your sight, that you, God, may be found just when you speak. That means when you pass the sentence. You may be found just when you speak or pass the sentence and blameless when you judge. I can never say, hey, you're not fair when I get judged because you have a right to judge me because I sinned against you and you know what I've done because I sinned in front of you. Therefore, when you pass the judgment, you're blameless and you are fair. Now he analyzes the situation. We have David's analysis of the situation. Look what he says in verse 5. You'll see in verse 5 it starts off with the word behold. In verse 6 it starts off with the word behold or low or look. So we have, he analyzes the situation, and this is the behold number 1, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother Conceive me. He acknowledges his solidarity with the human race. He says, and I was a sinner from the day I was born. I'm a sinner to the core. I was born in iniquity. I'm rotten through and through. This is called original sin. Or we're all naturally depraved the moment we're born. None of us is innocent. That's why before a child can speak, it can lie. Did you take your brother's toy? <laughs> Can't speak, but he can lie. Well, I said that to my children. Did you take your brother's toy? Well, I didn't teach them to lie. Where did they learn to do that? Who taught them to lie? Can't talk, but they can lie. That's our nature. We're naturally depraved. Look, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born sinners. <laughs> we all have a propensity to sin. Now when we're forgiven and God puts His Spirit in us, we now have a propensity to live in the right way because He gives us a new nature. But we are born with a propensity to sin. Now look at the second behold, verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inner parts. God doesn't want us just to adhere to the outer rituals and the sacrifices, for example, that he required of Israel. What he wants is us to be pure inwardly. Inwardly is where we should be pure. And the end of verse 6, he says, And in the hidden part, you make me know your wisdom. Uh, David says that God speaks to the inner person. There's a law, the Ten Commandments that are written on stone. We know the truth outwardly, but guess what? We also know the truth inwardly. We have a conscience, and God speaks in that still, small voice. And when you start to do the wrong thing, there is a voice that says, don't do it. And God desires that we know the truth and have wisdom inwardly because we need to Follow that inward voice of God. Now he reiterates his appeal in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop 
and I shall be clean. Cleanse me. Same thing he says up in verse 2. And I shall be whiter than snow. Now this reference to hyssop and being purged is a reference to the practice of taking a hyssop branch and dipping it in the blood of an animal, a sacrificial animal, and sprinkling a leper. The rule was that there was a whole ritual that you had to go through in order, if you were a leper, in order to be cleansed. And this involved taking a hyssop branch, dipping it in the blood, and sprinkling it on the leper. Now notice what he says in verse 7. He says, purge me, meaning you purge me with his son. This is God's doing. David cannot do it on his own. And you wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David sees himself as a moral leper. A diseased person who needs to be changed from being diseased and morally corrupt into somebody who is upstanding. At the end of verse 7 where it says, whiter than snow. That's a very interesting concept. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow? We talk about the pure, driven, the driven pure snow, and we say how white it is. Everything's so white. What's whiter than snow? The much whiter than snow. And what does he have to do to become whiter than snow? God has to make his, cover up his sin. Now, if you know anything about dying, D-Y-E, that kind of dying, you know that if you have a red a piece of red cloth and you try to dye it and make it white, guess what? You can't do it. You can't dye something like red white. So what he's asking God to do is something impossible. And yet that's what the scripture says. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be made what? White as snow. And so he's asking God to do something that is impossible for him to do for himself, and that is take this depraved nature, this sin that stains him, the sin that seems to be all over him and stains his soul, to to cleanse it and make it whiter than snow. And then look what he says in verse 8. Make me hear, this is sort of interesting, make me hear joy and gladness. What does he mean when he says, make me hear joy and gladness? You would think he said, make me praise or speak or whatever, or have joy and gladness in my heart. What does he say? Make me what? Hear joy and gladness. You know why he's saying that? Because all he has heard in the city, remember he's the king in Jerusalem, all he has heard in the city are whispers. Because when his citizens see him, they say, That's King David. You know what he did? We wouldn't be in that mess if he wasn't the president. Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> see, what David says, That's what I'm hearing. I'm tired of it. I need to hear joy and, and, and laughter and happiness in the street. Hey, there's King David, our hero. I want to hear that again. That's his request. Because he's the talk of the town, but it's not good talk. It's the whispering kind of talk. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you've broken, I'm a broken man, may rejoice. 
Now, it's a metaphor in the sense it's a simile. It's like his bones are broken. He's, he's like a man who's just bent over and uh, lost all of his strength. He says, I need to hear this joy that, that I will get strong again. And then he says in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins. This is uh, very interesting. He says, don't look on my sins. Uh, don't look on that record anymore <laughs> of my sins. Blot that out. Don't look on the stain of my, the sin on my life. Blot that out. Get that, wash that off. And blot out all my iniquities. And so what he's asking for there is basically forgiveness. Okay, now we come to the second stanza of the song. And this deals with salvation and the results. Let me make certain requests. Just request number one. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And then the second verse, second line means basically the same thing. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. What's he asking for? He's asking for God to create a new mind in him. Notice the word create. God has to do it. That word create, bara is a word that's only connected with God. Only God can create like this. You know, we can invent things, but when it comes to creating something out of nothing, only God can do it. He asked God to create within him a clean heart. Put a new heart within me. Get out that wicked heart that I have that's been I've been following that. Give me a new inner heart, oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit or mind within me, one that's not wavering. Uh, give me a heart and a mind that's suitable to live a godly life. Something has to happen inside of me, Lord, or I'm going to go right back and do those same things. I need a transformation inside. You know, you can put a tuxedo on a pig, and it will go into the first mud hole that it can find because. By nature, it's a pig. That's what pigs do. If you could change the pig into, change its nature and turn it into a lamb, it would stay away from, from uh, mud holes, whether it was wearing a tuxedo or not. Because it's of a different nature. David is asking God to change his nature, his inward nature, so he will not go back and do the things that he does. That's request number one. Request number two, verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. What does that mean? Don't cast me away from your presence. Because when a person was discovered with leprosy, guess what happened? He was cast away outside of the city. Or he may be thinking of King Saul who sinned. And God took his spirit away from him and cast him away. Or he may be thinking of Cain, who slew his brother Abel, and God cast Cain out of his presence. But what we're talking about is banishment. David says, don't banish me. And to be banished from God's presence in this situation would mean he would be deposed as the king. He would lose his crown. Just like Saul, when God took his presence from Saul, and he anoints David as king, Saul no longer is king in God's eyes. He may be wearing a crown, but he's no longer king in God's eyes. He says, don't cast me away from your presence. And then at the end of verse 11, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. There's the first reference of spirit to being God. Uh, don't take your anointing off of me as king, uh, like happened to King Saul. 
So, the Holy Spirit came upon kings and prophets and priests until God was done with them and he withdrew his Holy Spirit. David says, don't withdraw your Holy Spirit. Don't, don't kick me out as king. Okay? That's the second request. Request number three. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice the word restore. If you ask somebody to restore something, that means that's something that you once had, but now you lost it. He once had this joy of salvation, but he's not experiencing any joy of salvation because God's not delivering him anymore. They're getting beaten down by every enemy that comes up against them as a nation. Look, when we've gone through these first 50 Psalms, how many times, especially last year when we were looking at the Psalms, was David and Israel fighting against enemies. And God always came through and delivered them. And guess what? And they would all rejoice. God had saved them. He had delivered them. David says, I don't have that anymore. The enemy's always knocking at my door and it seems like we're just keeping our head above the water. We're not able to celebrate any victories. Oh, Lord, restore to me that joy of your salvation, knowing that you deliver us from our enemies. And then he says at the end of verse 12, and uphold me with your generous or your free spirit. I need to be undergirded. I can't do this on my own. He's talking about his dependence upon the Lord. Now that's very interesting to me because then what you come to in verse 13 are the results. Okay? Now look at this. Results. Then, if you do those three things, create, don't cast me away, and restore, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. This is what we would call a, an if-then type of a statement. If you do this, then I'll do this. Okay? So if you deliver me and get me out of the situation and forgive me and cleanse me, then what I will do, number one, verse 13, I will teach others not to make the same mistakes that I did. I will teach them based on my own experience and my own failures. So, that's the first thing he says that he will do. Remember Peter, when he denied Jesus? And Jesus looks at Peter. He says, Peter, when you've been restored... Strengthen your brethren. Because you'll know what it's like to have fallen. And we delivered you from it and restored you. Now you need to go out and help others. David says, that's what I will do. I will teach others. Okay, look at the second result. Verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Is he responsible for murder? And probably people in the nation have been killed as a result of battles. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Result number one is I will teach others. Result number two, I will sing aloud. When the congregation sings, my voice is going to be heard above everybody else's. You see, the greater the sinner who is pardoned, the louder the prayer. And David is hidden about the depths of sin as far down as you can go. 
And he says, I will sing loud if you will deliver me and get rid of this guilt, this guilty conscience. Look at the theme of the song. Righteousness. I will sing of your righteousness. And then the third thing he says he will do. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips. If you do that, and my mouth shall praise, shall show forth your praise. If you open my lips, I will now praise you. But God has to do it. David is not able to, up until this time, praise God. Uh, because he's been shamed to silence. Can you imagine the king saying, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the congregation said, Who's he living with today? He's been shamed to silence. And he asked God to cleanse him so that once again he can praise God with a pure heart. And then he says in verse 16, For you do not desire sacrifice. Remember this from last week? You do not desire sacrifice, or I'd give it. That's not what you're asking for. You do not delight in burnt offering. And he means that alone. God is the one that said give these offerings, but what did he say last week that had to be accompanied with something, remember? A heart of thanksgiving, or whatever the situation is. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. This is what must accompany any sacrifice that we give. These, O Lord, you will not despise. But he does despise any sacrifice that we give him that's not accompanied by a right attitude. And then we come to this last section, verses 18 and 19, where he makes a request for the nation. Here's what he says. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, which means simply protect the nation. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar, meaning it will be done the right way and you will be pleased. Everything will be restored to the way it should be. Now, there are some commentators that believe that these last two verses were added about 500 years later by an inspired writer uh, and refers to the time of Nehemiah when the walls were built around the city. I thought about this all day yesterday, and I'm convinced that that's wrong, and these are David's words. And uh, I think David is saying, Lord... Build walls around Jerusalem, protect Jerusalem, restore right worship to you. And he's saying that because of his sin, this nation has suffered greatly. And he's responsible for it. And they have not been protected. God said through Nathan, you're going to be, the sword's going to come upon the nation. They've not been protected. He's now saying, Lord, I've gotten right with you. Will you undo the mess that I've made for this nation? This is what God requires of every leader. He requires of the leader to recognize him and his voice and follow that voice. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
we'll pick up in Psalm 52 next week. Father, we thank you for uh, a very difficult passage, and yet we see ourselves here, even though the sin may not be as great or could be greater, but we see what we have to do. We have to own our sin. We have to confess our sin. We have to throw ourselves upon your mercy. We have to be dependent upon you. Oh, Lord, any of us need to be restored and have the joy of our salvation restored to us. May that be our cry as well. In Jesus' name. Thank you.